Let us pray once again. Oh God, have your way in us right now, we pray. That through your spirit, you will be among us, convicting us, exhorting us, rebuking us. Lord, we acknowledge our sin and we pray that you have your own way, Lord, in holiness, in righteousness, in truth. May you be with my mouth right now, Lord, that you will have your own way. In Jesus' name, amen. There's been a growth in controversies in past years concerning uh, plagiarism. Within the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a president, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Ed Litton, who had been caught plagiarizing from the pulpit. He denied it. Then he admitted. And, however, he kept being in office and he called it a private agreement that he had with uh, uh, J.D. Guerrier, another leader of the Southern Baptists, and very few Southern Baptist leaders spoke directly against this issue of pulpit plagiarism, opening a controversies which even involved the watching world, as even the New York Times spoke of widespread, of, was widespread uh, network of pastors borrowing from other people for sermons. And it was so embarrassing that even seminaries relaxing their approach to academic integrity led into mass production of plagiarism to the point that now it's considered okay. However, it's not okay according to God's word. It is equated to stealing, lying, and worst of all, it involves the pulpit, which is the place where God is supposed to speak to us. In fact, Charles Spurgeon spoke of people borrowing sermons as Dumb dogs who will give an account to God. And I contrast this with an episode that happened in 2011 in Europe. There was a, a politician who had been caught plagiarizing his uh, thesis 20 years earlier, and he resigned, apologizing for doing so, and he resigned immediately, and he was not a Christian. He was not even a believer. He was a secular politician, but... This is a small example, friends, of what it means to, to allow things happening in the house of God that should not be. That if the Savior, Jesus Christ, what would Jesus do, we often see? If he comes to his church, he would be cleaning house. And that's what we want to see today in the harsh words of our text in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. John chapter 2, 13 to 25. We have continued our journey through John. We saw last week, if you were there last uh, Sunday, we looked at the miracle of Cana. The first miracle, which opened now the first section of the Gospel of John. We saw in previous weeks, Jesus had gathered his first disciples. And now he begins to disclose his true identity, both in his words and in his actions. And so we consider this as being the earlier part of his ministry. However, verse 13 here speaks of the Passover of the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, if this happened chronologically, this would have been the first cleansing of the temple. 
And then later, the other gospels presents a second cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry before the Passion Week, just before his death. Because all the other three gospels record the cleansing of the temple at the end of their gospel. In fact, this would be what ultimately puts Jesus Christ at odds with the religious establishment being arrested, tried, and put to death. However, my understanding here, and you know, this could be a double cleansing, but is that John places this on the beginning of his gospel uh, topically to make a point, a theological point, uh, anticipating the ultimate cleansing of the temple of his body through his death on the cross. And in past week, we already seen that there has been a change uh, with uh, new wine as opposed to the water jars of ceremonial law, right? Now Jesus comes into the temple pointing to the fact that moral uncleanness rather than ceremonial uncleanness was what Israel needed to focus upon. And therefore, this cleansing of the temple at the beginning of John's gospel. And what we see here is that we must repent. Christ is calling us to repent from turning God's house into a marketplace. If you truly believe in the owner of the house, you repent from turning God's house into a marketplace. And what we want to see here in these harsh words of our text is three things. We see the cause of uncleanness. We see the consequence of uncleanness. And ultimately, what is the cure of uncleanness as Jesus cleans, cleans God's temple? Let us look at the cause of uncleanness. Is verse 14 to 15 of your, of your Bibles. Verse 14 is a moment of expectation. What would you expect as you go to Jerusalem? Every Jewish people 20 years old and uh, older needed to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. The highest moment in the Jewish calendar. You would expect people praying, worshiping, preaching, and making sacrifices. And instead what Jesus finds is a bunch of salesmen engaging in a financial machinery. The verse 14 tells us that you sell oxen, sheep, and doves right in the temple courts. This is gross irreverence. We know that only a selected type of animal was accepted to the temple. They needed to be blameless, right? And it was not convenient for all these pilgrims who needed to go to Jerusalem from all over the world to travel and bring their own animal. Only to find out that it wasn't the right one to sacrifice. And so, the need for a selling of animals for the sacrifices. And not only that, but there was also a temple tax. And half a shekel was to be given for the temple. And therefore, now you have the need of people to change that money to the exact amount. And this is not necessarily wrong. However, both this business had become exorbitant. The exchange rates and the magnitude of this traffic of selling and buying had been permitted initially around the city. 
But it had come to the point that they have, right there inside the temple, are doing these things. Imagine if you are a Gentile person who is not a Jewish person. You are not allowed to enter into the inner temple. And you, you are only allowed to come and pray in the outer court of the Gentiles. People from all over the nations are coming to pray. And they have to do so in the middle of money and changing and cattle. Selling and buying. Lord have mercy that this happens within the temple. With the express purpose to make money. That basing the worship of God into a commercial venture. I'm sure if you go to an airport, you are familiar with those uh, uh, bazaars for currency exchange, right? Uh, you come into a different country and you have to change your money. But airports have huge fees and they, they say that they are tax-free, but the, all that they sell is exorbitant price, right? Anything you buy in the airport, in fact, has the reputation of being three times the normal price. And that is already upsetting. But can you imagine this type of categories going for the things of God and in the sacred place of the temple? being Doing business right inside the temple. Making it an occasion for profit. That is an outrageous insult to God. It's like a church that looks more like Las Vegas. Dealers, brokers, loan sharks. So what to do in this case? Jesus, in verse 15, cannot contain himself. He gets rightly mad. So what does he do? He takes a whip made of cords. Tells you that there was no gun control there. Even Jesus brings weapons to church. But why? Why, friends? Why? Because this is an issue of sin. Sin is going on. Jesus has to take action. So what does he do? He drives them all out expels them, force them to leave because they're doing something evil, because they're doing something unclean and they're doing something that is not authorized by the word of God. Right? They're in the temple. Other gospels tells us that he even blocks them from entering. He did not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he spills all the money from those tables. He overturns the table literally upsets them why because of the house of god being turned into a bank the puritan william gurnall once said religion never goes in more danger than in a crowd of worldly business and so what what we see here is that the cause of uncleanness is greediness greed in the church the love of money Something that is extremely offensive to God. It must have been an ugly sight. And it's still an ugly sight, friends. Where the place that is supposed to be the house of God is turned to a mean for profit. You may have heard of people in church making investments, masquerade as charities. You hear of prosperity preachers making a mockery of Christianity with their private jets. You hear of people arrested for stealing money from their church or misusing funds for lavish spending and stealing money from the offering plate and but even things such as mixing the worship of God with worldliness of all sorts and this goes even 
closer home within what we call the, consider even our reformed solid doctrine camp where there's scandals and abuses, financial cover-up, as I mentioned, plagiarism, or turning theology into business. Or, friends, there is even a, a way to engage in theological doctrinal issues that is completely detached from the way you're living your Christian life. So that you have big thoughts about God, big thoughts about, but your life is in sin. That is an offense to God. You think about an uh, infiltration of politics into the church, and, and you know, the list of Daniel Roberts goes on and on. And those who engage in this needs to realize the immense danger that they are causing to the, to the church, to the cause of God, to the true sheep. And the true judgment that Jesus says that those who cause one of these little ones to stumble, it will be better than a milestone will be hang on him and he drop into the bottom of the, of the sea. Because you messed up with my bride, Jesus says, my church. See, you can be an expert in Christianity. Like the religious leaders, we'll see. But it doesn't matter to Jesus. What matters if he willfully deceive his bride for a bit of money? If the church fails to fulfill its call, what was the call of God from the Old Testament? To be a house of prayer for all nations. And here at the court of Gentiles, here is they, they, they do business. The name of God is blaspheme against all over the nations against the reputation of his church. That compromise before a watching world. And Jesus is rightly angry about it. The silent crowd of people were going through the temple and maybe they knew that this was wrong. And they kept going through the motion as if nothing wrong happened had forgotten that God is holy. That He is perfect. Or maybe they knew it. Their conscience told them, but they didn't have courage enough to act. Friends, if the worship of God is far more appropriate in a church than a dense hall, that, that we have a problem. And it's almost worse in the eyes of God. A person who claimed to be a Christian and lives in all sort of hypocritical lives and go and spreads that to others than a person who's an outright atheist who tells you, I don't believe in God. And I, you know, it's worse in the eyes of God. There's a problem if you're not bothered by what happens here in your soul. You cannot to be a true believer and tolerate a level of Hypocrisy such as this, covetousness, idolatry, right before the Lord. That these people, as we shall see, have professed their faith insincerely with improper motives. What's the point of celebrating the Passover? If you do not truly understand the implication of the sacrifice of the Passover. And the fact that there is repentance connected to this. There's reverence that is at stake here. How many people who are self-proclaiming Christians will come um, to him that day and he said to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Workers of iniquity. Yes, you. no matter how many times you said, oh Lord, I went to church. Oh Lord, I did this for you. Oh Lord, I cast demon before your name. I, I, I was there. I was attentive. But Jesus will say, depart. I never knew you. I never knew you. 
That is why we need to have true repentance, which in this case means confessing that sin, taking responsibility for your action, not damaging other people's faith by using God's name in vain for selfish motives, overturning, destroying, getting rid of whatever, gambling with the Almighty Holy God, doing whatever it takes to be done with anything that is displeasing in his sight. Asking yourself, am I bringing glory to God by this very act? Because friends, if we're lazy about those questions, there's a slippery slope that leads to compromise. And I'm not asking you to do this on your own and clean yourself up and fall again in another worse situation. The reality here is that we desperately need the Lord to rescue us from this sinfulness that is in us. That this is what we are by nature. And that we have a promise from God that He cleanses His church through the water of His Word, through the the gospel. That you cannot overcome it through your own, that Jesus cleanses you from within. But also, that you become radical in your repentance. Radical in your repentance. I was watching um, with my wife a movie the other day, a fireproof uh, marriage. And there's this parasites in his marriage, which in that case was pornography, which then led him to smash that computer. Get rid of that. Be radical in your repentance. But also, what we see here on the get-go of our text is, the question is who is on the Lord's side? Who will matter? Who will have concern for the glory of God above what happens in the church? You know, notice that Jesus doesn't start his ministry with teaching. If we take John's order, he starts with a drastic action, which points to us to the fact that just speaking badly about what's wrong, it's not enough. To actually bring things to an end, it's that profanity, that away from the things of God, to bring back the worship from all his corruptions that have been going on in the temple to the original purity of what the word of God prescribes to us. That was the goal of Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that now we are free to deal with anything that we find as problematic like Clint Eastwood and personal revenge or personal offenses. That is not what Jesus is doing here. When God's glory is trampled, injustice and sin is unaddressed in the church, God is insulted, this is not a personal offense, then Jesus acts and he calls us to act in the same way, to defend the glory of God. And not half-heartedly, that we don't allow anything that is not according to the scripture. That the greatest problem again is that the church in North America, as a great pragmatism, what makes sense, what is easier, right? What is more respectable? And you have like Aaron in the Old Testament, and all the people are coming to him and says, let's build a golden calf. It's like, okay, I mean, that's practical. Let's do this. And they cave in. So the problem here of this whole situation is the bad leaders, the religious leaders. They're the first culprits who have allowed this sort of iniquity to go on. But let's, now that we look at the cause of the uncleanness, which is greed in the church, greediness. Let's look at the consequences of uncleanness. Verse 16 to 18. 
The first consequence is that worship is defiled. Verse 16, now Jesus orders them to take everything away from my father's house. Stop making my father's house into a merchandise. A literally an emporium or a marketing and trading. This was not the intended purpose of the temple. There's almost a plain word here. Jesus has overturned the table because they have turned the house of God into a business place. It was supposed to be the father's house. And now it's a sales shop, a shopping mall. Now, when Jesus says those words, he's alluding to the Old Testament book of Zechariah 14.31. Speaking of the coming Messiah. And one, several translations translates this. On that day, they will no longer be a merchant in the house of the Lord. This is my father's house. That tells you that Jesus has authority to regulate what happens into that place. He has the right to clean the house of God. To promote the interests of his father. He came to this earth and he begins therefore this challenge with the Pharisees. And uh, other gospels add other quotes from Isaiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And then the counterpart of Jeremiah that says, You have made it a den of robbers. You know, Jeremiah chapter 7, that the people were coming to the temple and they says, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, but they went on stealing, committing adultery, and they come before the Lord and he says, How can you do those things? And Jesus, therefore, here is acting like the prophet. He is a prophet. And in verse 17, John makes a comment that the disciples are remembering and believing the scripture that Jesus is fulfilling here as a prophet. He, that the zeal of your house, that zeal of your house, that zeal is a positive interest for the things of God. A dedication and devotion and passion for the honor of God and almost envy when it is trampled underfoot. A fervor and jealousy for the well-being of the bride, of the church. And what does Jesus say? He has fulfilled this by being eaten up. Consumed by such zeal. Ravenously devoured or swallowed up. It's like you, you fall in love. And the person you like is going out with someone else. And... You can't eat. You can't sleep at night. You react in anger. Your routine is completely messed up. Your life is devoured. And now Jesus is consumed by the glory and the honor of God that has been trampled underfoot. It overtakes all of his thoughts almost in an undoing way. Destroying his balance. And that was... Exactly what the prophets of old felt. A fire on his chest Jeremiah had. No, lo no longer able to contain himself. His life was completely consumed. He must speak up. Christ is consumed here with the zeal for the purity of God's house. We'll see in coming weeks that J Jesus' daily food was not just eating bread. But to do the will of him who sent him and accomplish it. And when Jesus is saying those words, he's actually again fulfilling scripture. The zeal of your house. Psalm 69 verse 9. David. 
However, there's a second part of that Psalm 69 that Jesus is quoting. It is the cost of what Jesus is doing. The cost of speaking up. That the reproaches of them that will reproach you have fallen of me. Henry Wilkinson once says that zeal may be censored for frenziness, but it's the same livery that Festus bestowed on Paul, as we see in the Acts of the Apostle, that there's zeal. Are you ready, therefore, to face the hostility that comes from being consumed for the holiness of God? When you address sin, enemies will follow. And the only thing that gets you going, friends, is this anxiety for God's honor. The only thing that gets you running is to be so intensely wrapped out to, to the holiness and the concern for the things of God that you are willing to pay the cost. And Jesus is, therefore, the better prophet who cleanses the temple. Now, at this point, in fact, comes the opposition. Verse 18, the Jews which from other gospel we assume are the religious leaders, are coming and, and they're upset and ask, who do you think you are? I mean, the first thing they should have done is, we're sorry. This is absolutely embarrassing in front of everyone. Like, we have turned the, the house of God into, into a marketplace. That's true. No, what, that, that, that's not what they do. They, they demand a miracle. Verse 18 says, give us a, what sign do you show us to prove that you can do those things? Jesus later will com complain that people are looking for sign. And unless you see sign and wonders, you, you do not believe. This is just an excuse for these people. They, 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 they want to avoid their repentance. And so they remain in obstinacy, creating a distraction to what Jesus actually is after. Signs were expected by the Jewish people in particular to authenticate their role as a prophet. If you were a prophet of God in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18 speaks in verse 22, that when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the things that not happen, the Lord has not spoken. And so that's what they're asking here. However, the paradox is this, that view verse, a few verses later in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, I will raise for them a prophet and you shall hear him, which is, ultimately pointing to the one who is right before their face, who has authority to cleanse the temple, to act as the one who is sent of God, as we saw in previous weeks. So the consequences, friends, of uncleanness is that worship becomes vain. Worship is defiled. And people are left in, in their hardened hearts by their sin. How many churches today worship the Lord in vain? I was hearing of a church uh, nearby here, of a friend who told me that he, does, he goes to church and he doesn't feel the presence of God as he used to in the old days. Despite the fact that the church is full of uh, worship teams and all sort of like fancy show and stuff, but he doesn't, something is missing. And that is the presence of God. That despise all the music and the motions and the program and the show every sign did. That God is gone. That their house is no longer my house, says the Lord. And that no one is bothered by it. Nobody's saying, what have we done wrong? And in order to understand this, we have to broaden our understanding of worship. Worship is not just singing a song while standing up. 
Worship is all your life. You cannot separate your singing from the rest of your life. Worship is what restored our wholeness. That our incapacity to love God is turned into praise and our life needs to match our words. Our intimacy, which is broken by sin, is restored. Therefore, we worship in vain if we do not address sin. When your mouth is worshiping but your heart is in sin, you are lying to the Lord. That's why corporate worship, when we come together and, and, and it's effective when we, we do that in, in walking in reverence and holiness. And we become one with one another in, and we worship in spirit and truth. But there is a shocking disruption here. That this guy comes into the temple and it's like, who does he think he is? Smashing everything, how dare he is? During the most important ceremony, the Passover, right? So they're astonished. This is to an observer who's an outsider. What Jesus is doing doesn't make much sense. In fact, it's very disrespectful, they would say. But however, this zeal is perfectly appropriate. When God's kingdom and the worldliness collapse, it is perfectly appropriate to be what Jesus is here. Who is a strong, sharp, prophetic Righteous indignation. And this zeal, I'm afraid to say, is missing in the church today. That it would be wrong to be gentle with sin. It would be cruel, unloving, not to address sin. The majority of preachers of today are rarely outraged by the sort of iniquity that is tolerated in the house of God. Maybe because they want to keep their image, their position, and so they remain silent. And some others may be zealous, but their zeal is mis misguided. Maybe for a political reason or other things. But the proper zeal of Christ here, it, ad it addresses whatever profanes the honor of God. And what we consider... Something like this as disrespectful, offensive, worthy of censure when, however, God commends it, commends it. And the sadness of the reaction of the religious leaders is that their sin had hardened their hearts. Their conscience was completely numb. They are no longer bothered and they're missing the whole point of worship. Blind and self-deceived. May it never be of us that we come to this point that you allow to, this to happen under the watch. And, and God has to break your idol and show you your need of Him. Let's now look at the cure of this uncleanness. Verses 19 to 25, the end of our text. The cure to any uncleanness ultimately here, friends, is the same. is the death and resurrection of Christ. Verse 19 starts... With Jesus' answer, you remember that the question was, what type of sign do you show us that you have authority to do what you're doing? And the answer is very enigmatic, almost intentionally mysterious in Jesus. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy there actually means murder. Because we know that scribes and chief priests, right after he 
cleanses the temple, saw to how they might destroy Jesus right after. So Jesus knows what's coming. But this is also almost a challenge. He says, go ahead, destroy this temple. Kill me and see what happened next. The irony there is that in three days, it will raise it up. And, and our text comments, John comments, this, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Which means it's a metaphorical reference, not to the physical temple, but to the body of Christ, which was the true temple of God. Literally, as we saw in previous week, God has come to earth in Jesus Christ. And this, this will be a, a statement that everyone will misunderstand, even to the point of the trial and the crucifixion of Christ. They say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. But that's what Jesus is doing. Christ is fulfilling the prophecy in detail, right before their unbelieving eyes, by dying, offering his body, and then being raised again. But it was a hidden message to the unbelievers. What, what authority do I have? I am the temple of God. And I know you will reject me and kill me, but I will rise again. This is why I came. But the Jew in verse 20 have no clue what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus uses mystery to things that look like riddles, is to blind them because they are rejecting his person. He says, well, hold on a second. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. The renovation of the temple. How interesting that we are considering destroying the sanctuary. But the renovation here had started 46 years earlier with Herod the Great, and he had remodeled it. And if you remember, if you've been through Agai with us in the evening service, it had started many years earlier. And if you go to Jerusalem today, I've been, you still have these big stones at the basement of the ruins of the temple that were built to through that time. I mean, how nice it would be to rebuild the sanctuary in three days, huh? But they think that Jesus is referring to the physical temple. That is not the point of his analogy here. They completely miss the point because they are in unbelief. That this prophecy will be fulfilled when, the, when Jesus is there at the cross. He, he, he exalts his last breath and there is an earthquake and the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. That is the destruction. In verse 22, the disciples understand, however. They are not in unbelief. They connect the dots and elsewhere they understand, maybe not at first, but as our text says, after Jesus was risen, they understood that through the Holy Spirit, they believe that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. So just like last time, we saw Jesus radically moving away from ceremonial things in the Jewish institutions that are fulfilled, that are supplanted and replaced. So the Jewish temple now is the, the place where you went, went to meet God. Jesus is that temple. Jesus is that temple. And also is driving away of the animal sacrifices. Yes, it's, there's an element of immoral and Business dealing, but it's also 
foreshadowing the end of the sacrificial system. That ultimately, Christ is the temple, is the dwelling place of God, and we, by faith, become part of that temple, spiritually. Not physically, not a physical building, but our, our, our temple is the, our body is the temple, but also that the sacrifices are removed. That there's no more need because He is the ultimate sacrifice at the cross. Christ subject Himself to the law. The prophecy of the Old Testament said, A body you have prepared for me. That is what the, what the prophecy of Jesus here is re- referring. And the veil of the temple is torn in two. And now our sin has been paid for. Even our uncleanness, even our filth, our, our stealing, our Christ the Son becomes the head of this spiritual temple. And it, when you put your faith in Him, you become part of this spiritual house. That under His authority is the head, you become the true temple. And you are a living stone. But if you do not believe like the religious leaders and they hear this and for three years they forget. It's like listening to heedless sermons all your life. And you hope that right there at the side of the cross, it comes and it dawns on them what this refers to. But they are in their blindness and in their unbelief. And if we are Christians, friends, our body is the temple. So whatever we said in the previous point applies to us, especially as a community, that we are called to separate ourselves from empty, hypocritical religion, theft, sexual immorality, lies, slander, injustice, that all the abominations in the sight of God now is you are the temple of God through the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, and therefore you make the Holy Spirit feel at home to keep in holiness, to not touch unclean things. So this is the way in which the cure is the death and resurrection of Christ, but also the cure is Ultimately, genuine belief in Christ, verse 23 to 25, the end of our text. That yes, His death and resurrection, but also faith, genuine faith in this death and resurrection is what cleanses us from our uncleanness. The appropriate response now, it's the one of the disciples. The text of verse 23 says, Many believed in His name. So ultimately, other gospel tells us that Jesus was doing miracles and they believed. So the Jews were asking him for a sign. He was doing that before their eyes, but they were in unbelief. But here we say, see in verse 23, that, that when they saw the signs which he did, blind and lame were being healed, the children were crying Hosanna in the temple. But however, we know from the following verses that this belief was not coupled with true repentance, true commitment. Because verse 24 and 25, Jesus' reaction is very suspicious. It was a superficial faith. They believed just because they saw the miracles He was doing, and they were, had some hope of some political or uh, eschatological hopes, but it doesn't mean that they are truly converted. It doesn't mean that they really have sinned, the call out to their sin of cleaning the temple. To the point that Jesus in verse 24 and 25 says he did not commit himself to them. He didn't buy 
on their claim. It didn't consider them worthy of his trust. The very ones who professed to believe in the previous verse, very, many believed. Jesus says he doesn't entrust himself to them. This is astounding. I mean, any other preacher would say, oh yeah, that's nice. I got my new convert. But Christ knew how untrustworthy men are. Even in the outward profession of sympathy to Jesus. Because he knows what is in the heart of man. And we saw this already when Jesus calls the disciple. That Jesus is proving here is God. The only God knows what goes on in the minds of people. He knows the thoughts of men. He didn't need anyone to testify because he knew what was in men. Later, the disciples will realize this in chapter 16, verse 30. We know that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. So you may have heard of psychics or telepaths or false claim to read one's mind. But no one, no one on this earth can do this if, except God. That because Jesus is God, He knows all things. He knows the inner nature of all of us. He knows all the uncleanness in the temple. Nothing is hidden. And so, it's interesting that He says, He knew what was in man. Because next week we're going to say, in chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees. We're going to see how Jesus goes after him because he's not born again. And he's going through the temple. And Jesus has cleansed that temple. But this man, with all his profession, has a superficial faith because of the signs. Henry Smith once said, A man tries his horse that he must bear him. Shall he not try his faith? And that is the point here is that the cure to uncleanness is to repent from all covetous unbelief first and trust at the same time in the one who died and was raised for you. There is such a thing as inadequate faith. And we better watch out for it. To hypocrites who are sent to the gospel, but they don't obey the word of God. Yes, I want to be a Christian, but yes, I want to be a member, but Yes, I believe in God because what? Because I saw this miracle. It's easy to believe when everything is exciting and everyone else jumps in. But Jesus knows what's underneath. And it better be cleansed. That the heart of these people was not right despite their feeling of, of, of excitement toward Jesus. The inward man was not renewed. And we'll see next time what that means to be born again. Because when, when it is no longer popular to be a Christian and everyone flees, you're demonstrating that you're actually not repented from being a thief. And Jesus cleaned the church from being turned into a marketplace. And apparently, these people that say, I believe now, I've been okay with all that for all along. Something is wrong. Until Jesus came, who waits the heart of man. Will he find us wanting? That's what I'm telling you. The hypocrites must tremble before this text. False Christians shrink from the eye of an all-seeing Savior who knows the, the dirtiness within. You can deceive man, but not Christ. He sees the rottenness. He sees the theft. He already 
reads our heart and is displeased. And he calls us to turn away from it. Because if we die unchanged in this rottenness, it will be known to everyone before the throne of God of all that. And if faith is based again on, on, a, on an outward miracle, outward things, it is not true faith. Friends, just witnessing the power of God before your eyes is not a guarantee of your eternal safety. We must deal with the issues of repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ truly, which implies again allegiance, which implies clearing up. Now you're a holy vessel to the Lord. Instead, for the believer, everything is well. Who are, despite their weakness, despite their, 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 their frailty, they love Christ in sincerity. And, and they can be like Peter's, like, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know I love you. Even in, in the betrayal, but he still has nothing to hide before his Savior. So let this be true for you, friend. And we'll see uh, later in this very same place, Christ will be punished ultimately with another whip. Same whip, but this time will be iron and not cords and 40 lashes, almost as a revenge from the religious leaders over him taking over the whip. That is the way that Jesus bore your sin. He was crushed for your iniquities, for our theft. Our stealing, our selfish love of money, our mockery of holy things. And friends, if this is true, may the kindness of God lead you to repentance. Trusting to the one who bore your chastisement. So, what do we make of this? This, uh, this scandal in the church of God and this party that Jesus brings over to the end. The thief being caught... That the Lord has suddenly come to his temple, as the prophets of old have said. And what has he found? What will he find? Friends, if you, you either concern yourself with God's glory and, and say, we need to take care of this. Or you go on like those religious leaders who want to use power to maintain things as they are. Keep closing an eye to it. And you know, you may say, oh, okay, it was, it, was, it was for those Jewish people out there because they were so bad, right? It maybe is, is the liberal church over there around the corner. He's not going to be mad at us. But friends, we are filled with sinners. We are all sinners. We are not free from the shortcoming of sin. And His mercy is not an expense toward His holiness. The two things go together. His mercy and holiness go together. And so... If the first act that Jesus will do at the second coming, I want you to know is the judgment will start and begin with the house of God. And if those who are in the house of God will be barely saved, what will happen to those who are not? Jesus is calling us as church and all the churches that when Jesus visits the church, he finds it as a house of prayer. Not a place for personal context or business advantage or worldly affair and worldliness or just staying in the body and the pew and listening to something but being deaf he wants true worship which is from within from our life the heart not just the lips that our heart may not be found far from him because friends the flagrant disrespect that we see in this text is offensive to God 
That's why Ecclesiastes says, Keep your foot when you go to the house of God, lest you offer the sacrifice of fools. Without reverence, without, as we come to the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper, without self-examination. You know what happened with Nadab and Abihu when they tried to offer a sacrifice that was unauthorized? God consumed that. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, God takes him away. Our God is a consuming fire. That is ultimately true reformation, friends. That we stop justifying or rationalizing, or as we saw, pragmatism takes over. No, we seek to bring honor to the Lord of the church. Because we'll give an account for the way we bore the name Christian. And so it is time, friends, that we separate times for prayer from times of doing our business. Just as light must remain separate from darkness, places of worship must be separate from idolatry. Just as sacred space must remain separate from profane manners of zeal must be separate from complacency. Just as holy things must remain separate from the unholy, our attitude of genuine true faith must be separate from unbelief. Just as truth must remain separate from any lie, all on the basis of Christ, His death, resurrection. May this be true of us. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word that this morning convicts us and shows us our unworthiness. Lord, have mercy. When your house is turned into a business, Lord, it may never be of theta, Lord, that we will protect and guard our church, Lord, from going down that path. We pray, Lord, that with soberness of mind, realizing of the great cost of those things, for your cost, for your kingdom, help us to walk in holiness, that, Lord, our walk will match our talk, Lord, that we will serve you in reverence and fear for who you are a holy and perfect God that when Isaiah was brought before he had to say woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of un people of unclean lips and God we pray that even Lord you will turn away from any sort of hypocrisy any one of us sitting here this morning Lord that through your death and resurrection, Lord, we will come with true, true belief. Not for outward things and miracles and, 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 and superficial faith, but it will be a genuine faith transforming our life, Lord. Bringing radical change for the rest of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name.